You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me again is my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Looking across at you across the table now that we are a functioning office once again. Yeah, I mean, we function, we office. I keep wishing I could work from home again. I, I know, was you love the kind of home. getting used to it. You've got a lot done working from home. I got so much done. But there's also, you know, work you're missing in the office. And you think to yourself, these are interruptions, these are interruptions. But it is actually also work. But, you know, today I did three IRP hearings. I had two Zoom meetings with committees. I had two telephone meetings. I talked to a couple prosecutors, but mostly I sent emails and did things, did some changes to, like, client documents that needed to be edited per their requests. Nothing that couldn't have been done at home. Well, yeah, that's true, but you probably also took a few phone calls and right there with clients, no? Nope, I took no phone calls. I had no time. some people came up to you and asked you questions in the office, and that probably sped up their work in the office. So there you go. slowed down mine. I did chat with you about some things, strategic things on files and and such things that I would have otherwise skipped. So maybe it slowed down, but it it helped me, speed me up. Okay. All right. I got things done. I noticed everybody was getting things done today. Working hard. Okay. Not hardly working. I'm, uh, anyway, we have a lot to talk about. I'm glad to be back in the office is what I'm telling you. Although, yes, I also miss the relaxing days of... But I, I just found it more relaxing working at home. I don't know how you found it more relaxing working from home because you were doing childcare most of the time. And I'd text you and be like, I've got a couple of hearings. Can you call this client? And you're like, I've got childcare. I can't talk to anyone. So. Well, I mean, it's hard to call clients when you've got, you know, kids running around you. Okay. Um, anyway, my uh, point was we're back in the office, but courts are not back. I think recently we had spoken and we'd talked about, um, uh, traffic um, court. So traffic court was a funny thing. So you had posted some comment saying, well, it looks like, uh, everybody's got to be ready to go for traffic court again, June 1st. And the, uh, BC provincial court saw your tweet and replied and said, no, that's not right. No, no, you're not relying on, that's not right. We haven't officially announced our reopening. Well, okay, it was but only would... days before the first, and we're sitting there, you know, trying to figure out whether or not we can prepare. Do we have to go to court? What's going on? Uh, they Why said haven't they... we got an opening? They said they hadn't announced their reopening. So does that mean it's definitely not going to happen June 1st? Because we've got tickets scheduled. What was going to happen? Yeah. And it's been fascinating because the Court of Appeal, like, basically shut down before everything else in the province just on their own initiative, just like, we're not risking ourselves, we're old and we're the Court of Appeal, we're not going to continue to have hearings. <laughs> and then BC Supreme Court, that, yeah, and you don't get close enough to them anyway. And then uh, BC Supreme Court basically did the same thing, and Provincial Court, where the actual, you know, rubber hits the road, um, is, uh, you know, struggling to deal with this overload, and it seems like everybody just forgot about traffic court, 
And, okay. Uh, so I was talking and you interrupted me. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I wanted to express my feelings about it because yes. I, I look yeah. at the hierarchy of courts and the way that the decision was, decisions have been made and it just feels like traffic court was neglected. You're a man Go of ahead. feelings. I do have feelings. The point was that we found out very last minute that now they were going to adjourn every tra traffic ticket up until June 12th, up to and including June 12th, which is fine. June 12th is coming up real fast. But that's seven uh. days away now. And are we going to have courtrooms ready to go for traffic court on June 15th? Or are we going to have another set of, you know, two-week adjournments where we don't know what's happening? And if courtrooms are going to be ready to go on June 15th, we need to know the measures that are being put in place. I mean, to me, it is absurd that the court's like, we'll let you know when we can. I was in one of my Zoom meetings today talking to a group of lawyers, and one of them said that they were talking to judges and the judges and the court staff, and everybody was saying, look, nobody knows. But I just, I don't understand if they've presumptively adjourned everything except urgent or priority matters upon your application um, in criminal court to July 3rd, why not do the same for traffic court? Like, are these two weeks of traffic tickets really going to tip the scales somehow? Well, are they going to be prepared somehow for traffic court? Is the plan to experiment on traffic court participants? That's where no. there's always a number What's of self-represented accused there. That's the, you yeah. know. You've got the highest volume. You know, if you have trial courtrooms coming back up, you've got, you know, the, the JCMs have assignment court. And they assign you the the judge. They can do assignment court by telephone a week in advance. So you know whether you're going to have a judge a week in advance. But to say traffic court, you know, we don't know. But we're going to throw you guys in the largest grouping of 25 to 30 people per session per courtroom, per courthouse. And you have no idea what's going to run and what's not going to run. Nope. And so if you're... If they're all going to run, if they're all going to be trials, you're going to have people sitting there all day. All day. I'm not going to, I'm not going to plead my clients guilty. I'm going to run all my trials. Absolutely. And I got time, so um, I got time to wait. Um, yeah, I, 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 it just bothers me. But there's also another development with traffic court besides the, it was adjourned, but also here we are ticking towards the next adjournment date. Um, They've changed the correspondence that goes out to people who dispute traffic tickets in kind of a sneaky way. Yeah, it's one of those things that the government does, like the the people who are dealing with this aspect in Road Safety BC. They've been so sneaky over the years. Um, this is now ICBC. It's all connected. They're all talking to each other. And so now the new letter they send to you, Okay, so we should explain the process. If you, we file the tickets in dispute for our clients because we want to have control over the dates when the, the yep. trials are going to take place. And we do that. That's a strategic decision we make. It's a smart decision for our clients. Mm -hmm. um, and it also helps us organize our own schedules. But um, when you first dispute your ticket, you get a letter that says, ticket has been registered in dispute. And then later on, if you're a law office and you do a lot of tickets, they contact you to schedule it and then they send you a notice, a hearing date notice. This is the way that it works in BC. Uh, but now they've changed that initial letter and the mm -hmm. initial letter says, well, if you're just looking for a fine reduction, 
No, it's if you don't want to come to court, if you yes. do not want to appear in person in court, which ordinarily might not be such inflammatory language that it would get me all riled up. But in the midst of a pandemic, to say, if you don't want to come in person to court... You don't want to be scared and risk yourself and put yourself at risk of a pandemic. It's like a little threat. Yeah, you can write in and ask for a fine reduction, or you can pay the ticket to plead guilty. Well, yes. great. You're just incentivizing people by saying you can avoid the risk of COVID-19 by not disputing the ticket that you just filed with us to dispute. And... The upsetting thing about that is that they're suggesting to people, you're not going to be safe here, so you better off just, you know, pay the ticket or write in to ask for a fine reduction. And that might not be the intention. No, but that's how it comes across. And, you know, somebody sat down and thought about that letter and they didn't think about it as long as I think they should have, but that's the way that it comes across to me. Uh, uh, what remedy we might have for people in those circumstances, I haven't turned my mind to it because I think I just saw that letter today. I think that was the first one that that uh, we got. Yeah, But there's uh, an yesterday. interesting thing that happens. You know, people dispute tickets sometimes thinking they're just going to dispute the fine amount and go into court and ask for a fine reduction. And over the course of the year, the law changes on cell phones mm -hmm. uh, and they learn about that and they phone us and then we go and conduct the hearing. Or um, over or, the course of the year, their circumstances change and they're in a position to be able to pay the fines, so they decide to take the risk of running the trial. Or over the course of the year, their need to drive changes and they can't afford the conviction on their record. There's thousands of reasons why. They put it off, they call us, we end up going to court, we talk to the police officer, and we notice something in the officer's notes that's like completely missing. Mm -hmm. And then they end up being acquitted instead of having a conviction where they would have saved, you know, $50 on a fine reduction. Yeah. So I don't like the letter. I don't like the idea of the court trying to encourage people to plead out. It's not like it's being done in like a pretrial capacity where there's some gatekeeper role played by a, a you know, judicial figure, a JJP or a judge who says, you know, crown what say you, defense what say you. Well, here's problems I see. This, you know, this case seems unwinnable defense or uh, crown. What's your issue with this? Both of which, of course, I've dealt with in pretrials in other provinces. And then... Or the issue of having a crown counsel lawyer looking at it to determine whether or not it even meets the charge approval standard. Yeah. Yeah, you get a... You just get a police officer submits a thing, you file it in dispute, and then you get this letter saying, well, write to us because you should be too scared to come to court, and, you know, we might throw throw a couple bucks off. Look, I had a ticket <laughs> once where the officer ticketed my client for speeding. He did it on the basis of the fact that he had a moving radar in his vehicle, and he was just fucking around with it and turned it on and got a reading, and... Looked to him like the vehicle was speeding, so he figured he'd write the ticket on the basis of that. Now, you and I both know how valid that ticket is. I'm sure you brought it to that officer's attention. And it he was brought saved. it to my attention. Oh, okay. He said, All look, right. I, I just assumed the guy would pay the ticket. I didn't think he'd go through the trouble of hiring a lawyer. Uh, if he disputed it, I was going to drop it. Um, well, there you go. There's a perfect example of where it didn't meet the charge approval standard. And uh, he knew it. Yeah, and the officer knew it. Uh, and here we're encouraging people to plead guilty. There are also lots of times where lots of police officers will make a roadside deal with somebody. They'll say, I'm issuing you this ticket if you dispute it. And if in the meantime, 
you don't get any other tickets, or you get rid of your inn, or you buy a mount for your cell phone, those are the three most common ones I hear, Take then I'll drop it. driving course. Yeah, mm. I'll drop it on the court date. So we see that, and now all of a sudden the court's stepping in and maybe muddying the waters of some type of pre-dispute agreement that the individual and the officer came to. And you, as a self-represented person, might not understand that the letter is telling you to plead guilty and that the ticket's going to go on your record, and you might not understand that that's not part of the deal that you made with the officer roadside. Well, they're going to have a problem, because if people are just writing in um, to say, I'd like a fine reduction, their letter is not going to make it. Their letter is not going to be sufficient for that purpose. Well, um, and there and are lots they, of offenses that you can't get a fine reduction for. Sure, but the letter will not suffice, right? The letter is going to go in there and it's going to say, suddenly now I'm pleading guilty? That's a guilty plea. Is that free and uh, a free and, and, and pro properly informed guilty plea? Can you say that when somebody just writes a letter in saying, okay, I'm happy if I just get $50 or if I get a fine reduction because I haven't been working? Yeah, how do you conduct a plea inquiry? How do you, how do, you do a plea in that circumstance? Because really that is the court conducting a plea. It's not a situation like a, you're no longer disputing the ticket. You file the thing in dispute. It's not like when you file initially and you can all, you've always been able to do written reasons for a fine reduction. But at least then you're saying, in the first instance, I'm taking responsibility. I want to plead guilty. This is a problem. I see. That, they, they, that is not a properly informed guilty plea. You know, in the courts, the appellate level courts have been pretty strict when it comes to people paying tickets um, and wanting to withdraw their pleas on tickets they've paid. And they haven't... You know, I, nobody seems to have argued, though, the absence of the plea inquiry. And I think that might be an avenue that's going to get explored. Yes, I think it's gonna, an avenue that's going to get explored. I don't know that they're going to be able to... I think they're probably going to look at it and say, oh, my goodness, I don't think we can register a plea because half the people who write in are probably going to write in and explain, well, I actually wasn't speeding, um, but, you know, I lost I'm my happy. Job. I lost my job. I'm just happy to... You know, if it can be a, save me a little bit of money, I'd appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, joke's on you, asshole, because it's a minimum $138 fine, so no fine reduction. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, Moving. maybe the provincial government will open that up during COVID days to make it easier for people. They need it's the money. It's not possible. They're going to need the money. They need a legislative amendment. So what is happening? Is the legislature even sitting at all? Are all those bills dead? Because we had a Motor Vehicle Act bill that was sitting there waiting, and yeah. it was already second reading, waiting for it's third. It's all just hanging out. Well... I hope that um, they start anew because there will be many, many different things they need to do. Yes. Um, but moving on, Paul, Eric McGracken, friend of the podcast, friend of the people. Lovely man. Hero. Hero to British Columbians. He's <laughs> um, my hero. I love Eric. I think he's fantastic. And I've said as much on this podcast numerous times. He's been a guest. He is our most popular guest. And he tipped me off to this case, uh, Gorst and ICBC. Um, essentially, uh, what happened was there was a hit and run. And so when you're involved in a hit and run collision, you have to take reasonable steps to follow up on the identity of an unknown motorist. So if you, if you, it depends on what you hit, right? But if you hit a vehicle, you're supposed to stop and do your best to ascertain who the driver or who the owner is, mm -hmm. um, even if you hit a parked car. 
Uh, and if you don't do that, I mean, you run into a circumstance where you can be charged under the Motor Vehicle Act. Uh, if you just leave, of course, you can be charged under the criminal code. Yeah. But if you want to, if you're the victim of the hit and run and you want to sue for your injuries, you have an obligation to at least attempt in a reasonable way to identify the driver of the other vehicle. And that's why we see these signs hit and run at this intersection on, you know, June 21st. Did you see anything? And everybody kind of chuckles to themselves because who actually calls in as a result of those signs? Nobody. We all chuckle to ourselves. Yes. So this was Mr. Gorst. And he was riding his motorcycle. Um, There was a group of motorcycles uh, that um, resulted in him uh, being required to take evasive action to avoid a collision and laying down his bike and then him becoming injured. And this other motorcyclist carried on and remained unidentified. So he sues ICBC pursuant to the unidentified motorist provisions. And the court says, yeah, yeah, the other biker is in fact partly liable for this, but you don't get any money, sir, because he didn't make any inquiries to find out, or didn't make enough inquiries, to find out who was this other motorcyclist. How the hell are you going to figure out who the other motorcyclist is? Well, this is the thing. He claimed that he couldn't make any inquiries because he believed the other motorcyclist was a member of the Hells Angels. Um, and so how he, the hell are you going to make an inquiry into the Hells Angels? You, he was you, afraid. You want to die? Well, this is the thing. Take your life in your hands just for an injury claim to figure out who the driver of was of the other motorcycle? Well, that was his argument. Like, you, know, you shouldn't have to. That's a to. great argument. I think you, so, too. You cannot, you cannot be put in a situation where you have to contact a somebody who is a member of a criminal organization, recognized criminal organization, in the uh, federally recognized by criminal legislation, put you in a position where you have to contact that criminal organization known for violence. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was the... And there was, he reported this too, to... ICBC took the position that he was obligated to try and contact... He'd even, like, dealt with the RCMP, the Independent Investigations Office was involved, they gave him some information of someone to talk to, he contacted them and was like, hey, did you see anything in this motorcycle accident? And the guy's like, nope. And he didn't ask him anything else because he was scared because he was told this guy either was or may have been closely associated to the Hells Angels, so he decided, going to leave it at that. I tried, not going to poke the bear. And then he he essentially placed his trust in the police and their independent investigations office to try and figure out who this was. And they didn't figure it out. And so it's his fault somehow that the police weren't able to figure out the identification of the other rider and he wasn't able to figure it out. And apparently asking somebody is even not enough. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yep. It, I mean, you're telling me it went to court? And... It went to court and a judge dismissed it, finding On... that he failed to make reasonable inquiries. He gave, he gave oh my goodness. three specific reasons for it. First, that the plaintiff received no information from the IIO that they were seeking out the identity of the riders Um, and so it wasn't reasonable for him to rely on the independent investigations office. Um, he didn't follow up with the independent investigation office. And if he was relying on them, he should have followed up with the police. Although I think most people 
have this assumption that if the police are investigating something and there's a development in the investigation... And if they find something, they're going to contact they're you gonna and contact let you. They're going to contact them. Yeah. That's not how it works. No, squeaky wheel. Yeah, but, no, but that's the assumption. And it's, it's no, perpetuated by that. American television. You watch Forensic Files and all those other shows. The cops are on the phone with the victims, updating them on the investigation all the time. Cold case files are always like, oh yeah, it's been no, 20 we've, years we've since got, your husband got, was murdered. We've but got we've all this talk every time the, the conservatives pass some new piece of legislation about victims, victims that everybody Bill would of be... Rights. Yeah, and it, the, the, the assumption is that the police are going to contact you. That is the assumption that they're going to do their job. And let you know, it's, the onus should not be on you to be phoning them every week to be a squeaky wheel. Well, get this, the third reason the court said that he didn't take reasonable steps was that a number of individuals may have, have had information leading to the identification of the biker, including the participants in the poker run, this potentially, you know, concerning activity, the police officers involved in surveillance and the proprietors of the establishments that the poker run visited. Well, first of all, those proprietors ain't ratting out anybody that they think is on a Hell's Angels trip. And secondly, police officers involved in surveillance are sure as hell not going to tell you nothing. Oh yeah, the undercover officers are going to come yeah. out and they're yeah. going to they're going to breach their cover to tell. They're going to, to reveal the information reveal the about information their surveillance activities, so that yeah, you could criminal sue activities. a guy. Yeah. No. When it's, it's all being happened. paid by the same. Insurance company, no matter what. Like, it's all coming out of the same pot. I've done criminal trials involving allegations of gang involvement where I've been cross-examining officers on their surveillance activities and the court has shut me down because it might reveal something in a case where I'm entitled to disclosure and entitled to test the evidence. Wow. So I, I don't know, like, this just, to me, this judgment just completely neglects the realities of criminal investigations. So that's my concerning thing. That is thing. ridiculous. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Well, I'm, that's going to be appealed. That's got to be appealed. I, I mean, hope that so. Just, that just gives the impression that our court is completely separate from connection to the community or logic or the way things function. Just very, very strange. Now, speaking of the impression that the court is separate from the community or logic or the way things function, a lot of people are upset about a BC Court of Appeal ruling. That was released this week. I've been good on my transitions today. Good for you. What is the next one? The BC Court of Appeal uh, on Monday this week released its decision in Tannhauser, which is the first distracted driving case to oh, actually oh, oh, go oh, 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 to the Court of Appeal. I know all about this. So having a discussion with me about it, I've read, I read the cases. I'm You've actually prepared. Them. Oh my God. I threw them in my recycle bin after I, I read them, but I spoke to the media about it. So really? did you. You Why made a video. You? Really good video. Good yeah. video, by the way. Did make yeah. a video. Yeah. Um, you helped me film it. Well, I know, but I didn't, I don't watch it. I walked away. <laughs> you drove the Range Rover I had for a day. I walked, <laughs> I walked away and you filmed it. I just saw it after the fact. <laughs> I felt very embarrassed to be seen <clears throat> in that car. One take Lee. Too much, too much money. Always mm. freaks me out that you can do these things in one take without it, like it a took notes me, or anything. It took me three takes because there were distracting cars and There was a helicopter. There was a helicopter. helicopter. Yeah. But I mean, it was still just one take. It was starting in two seconds in, a helicopter flying over. So Tannhauser, for those that didn't read the cases, <coughs> didn't watch my video on Twitter, didn't watch mine or Paul's media interviews on it. A uh, case involving a man who uh, was issued a ticket for distracted driving. He had his phone sitting on his passenger seat. He had software on the phone to disable it while driving. So it couldn't take calls or receive calls, text messages, any of the 
things that you do with a cell phone. Um, it essentially was a paperweight. He picked it up to access some papers that were under the phone, and the act of picking it up was what he was ticketed for. The BC Provincial Court in traffic court, the JJP acquitted him, finding that it wasn't a, a um, an electronic device, but also that he had the defense of due diligence, that he'd taken reasonable steps to try and avoid the the unlawful behavior. It wasn't quite a correct articulation of what due diligence is. I think putting it in the glove box was due diligence. I didn't think having it sitting there was due diligence. Neither of those things are due diligence. No. Due diligence is reasonable reliance on a mistaken set of facts, which if true would have afforded a defense. Sure. But I mean, <laughs> actual diligence, okay, would yeah. be to put the phone somewhere where you can't sure. access it. Sure. But anyway, he acquitted him on that basis. Crown Appeals goes to the BC Supreme Court. BC Supreme Court judge is like, yeah, I also agree he should be acquitted. I come to the conclusion for different reasons. I think he should be acquitted because um, the disabling software uh, prevents the phone from being an electronic device and a, just picking up a, an object isn't violating the distracted driving law. So same result, different reasons. Crown appeals again. I didn't agree with either decision. Anyway, go ahead. Well, actually, Crown seeks leave to appeal because you can't just, just appeal. appeal from a summary conviction um, appeal traffic court decision. They get leave to appeal. The Court of Appeals like, yeah, this is sufficiently public important so that we need to address it. And we wait. And it was like a long time before they finally rendered their judgment. Like they took their time on this one. But it came out on Monday overturning the acquittals, sending it back for a new trial and sending it back for a new trial on the basis of the fact that effectively the distracted driving laws as drafted don't depend on whether or not your phone has the present capability to be an electronic device, transmit or compute data or send or receive calls, but the possible ability to do it at some point in the future. And so if your phone has disabling software, doesn't matter the act of holding it, it's still a phone. They say a lamp doesn't cease to be a lamp just because it's turned off. You're right, but it doesn't cast a light. And so if the lamp is problematic because it's shining light, then turning off the lamp fixes the problem. To me, with the cell phone, if the cell phone's problematic because it's distracting, because it's going to be on, and pinging and text messaging and making you want to look at it, then who the fuck cares if it's... I think they are dealing with something that should have been dealt with in the legislation, and yep. that is whether or not the phone is on and active and activated or not. And if if it doesn't matter, then that should be in the legislation. But when they talk about uh, either in your hand or using, um, you know... At, they are implying that it is functioning. They're implying that you can use it in the current version of the legislation. So I think this was the Court of Appeal trying to basically correct what I think is a problem Poorly. in the legislation. Poorly drafted um, law. But I'm 
I, I'm not surprised that it went the way that it did. No, I'm not surprised either. But it's like, what if you're going to correct the flaw in the legislation, why are you correcting it in the way that leads to more people being convicted for what is effectively a harmless action? And they're all like, but the screen might illuminate posing a distraction. Have you seen a modern vehicle? Somebody said on Twitter to me, um, it seems like this law was drafted when the most modern car they could imagine was a 2007 Ford Focus. Close. Um, it was, um, it came into effect in 2010. Uh, 2007 Ford Focus was probably what most uh, government employees were driving or some equivalent uh, at the time that it was drafted. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a very different, uh, very different screen than uh, a uh, new Tesla or that new Range Rover that you're driving. Yep. Um, so uh, yeah, it's definitely needs an update. But I, I, I wasn't excited about the, I, I didn't, I didn't agree with the lower court decision. I had problems with the finding of fact in the, at the provincial court level. Sure. When it got to the, um, the BC Supreme Court level, um, I, I didn't agree with the reinterpreting of it, um, of the facts that had, had been found. But uh, and I then it gets to the court of appeal and the court of appeals looking at it and, and just saying it doesn't matter. It's could be could be a functioning electronic. I mean, what happens if you've got, you know, your dead phone there in your car? Well, this is the thing. They say a dead phone can be charged. No, so, I mean a phone that could never be functioned. Well, they do give again. this example in the judgment. They say, you know, there may be a point at which an electronic device ceases to be an electronic device where it's so broken or out of date that it can no longer function. See, but so that doesn't need to be decided in this case. Yeah, well, the problem with that is that they're they're then not fixing. No. Their, their attempt to fix is not a fix. It's like, great, go find facts that will fix this in the most extreme example where you are driving around for some reason with a completely useless phone in your car. Well, that's often where it ends up when you're taking it to go get it recycled. And sometimes you hold things in your hand that you shouldn't hold in your hand. Sometimes you have something sitting there that you shouldn't have sitting there. I've got a bunch of old phones that could never even function anymore. Anyway, I just, you know, uh, it, it got me down. It got me down. I thought, here's an opportunity for the Court of Appeal to say, yeah, this isn't consistent with the spirit of the legislation. And instead they went on about, you know, strict interpretation. But then when you try and argue strict interpretation to them, they go on about the spirit of the legislation. So you can never win with statutory interpretation. It's a losing game. I've noticed that with, yeah. Yeah, and you <laughs> go in there, you go in there and you argue, well, I mean, the, but you be said. interpreted to, yeah, and, and really this is protection of the individual. So it really should be strictly interpreted yeah. Uh, to protect them. Yeah. I mean, the government's got all the advantage of writing the legislation and applying the legislation. And then they're all like, uh, don't throw our don't words throw back our, on us. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> strict interpretation, <laughs> you're asking way too much here. What is it? What are they going to write? And then, yeah. and then, you know, next day that comes along and it just kind of feels like they're just trying to facilitate the government's stick. Anyway, it's just yet another example, as I've said, of how stupid this law is. You can't draft a law to address technology in 2009 that passes in 2010 that's supposed to still address the existing technology a decade later. Well, I mean, it, it, you can if you were talking about, you know, hydraulic brakes. 
you you can't you know, we we still have hydraulic brakes Kyla you're looking at me like you don't know what hydraulic brakes are you they're can't... brakes that are hydraulic of course exactly but we've had <laughs> hydraulic brakes for probably you know 93 years does my car have hydraulic brakes all cars have hydraulic brakes oh okay so you can pass legislation with respect to that but if you're going to talk about screens in cars when you know that all the cars are coming out with screens in them um I think you've gonna you're gonna have to revisit it if you don't want to look silly. Yeah, but, but really, again, this is back to the federal government and all of these screens in the car. Like I look at the okay in my truck, I've got a big screen there in the center in the F one fifty. I don't drive it very often, especially this time of the year because I'm driving the old Chevy. But that screen is really distracting. Uh, it only really operates the radio and navigation. Uh, the it's otherwise knobs. But mm -hmm. if I stop to look at it, I get pulled in as I'm waiting for it to transition from radio to navigation or navigation to whatever. Uh, and I see that it is a distraction and it's very different. Like I was thinking about when I worked at the auto trader, I used to drive around all day and I had a paper map and I would plot out where I was going to go for my most efficient route. And I had my paper map in my hand. I'd be eating. I'd have my pen. I'd have all my message slips with, that had all my appointments through the day. And I never had an accident. I drove 200 kilometers a day. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't a problem. But if I look at my phone to read a message, I end up in the other lane in like 30 meters of driving, right? So it is a very different thing. But I also notice the same thing happens with that screen. In your car, I've driven your car, the screen, that dash, I go there to make sure that my, my bum is warm. And next thing you know, I'm distracted by that. Well, there you go. So... Speaking of things that are ridiculous, like BC's Distracted Driving Law, it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. So, this week, our Ridiculous Driver comes from Vancouver Island. Woohoo! Yay! Close to home. West Shore RCMP searching for a man who apparently had a bit of a meltdown in a drive-thru. So he's at the Wendy's in Colwood, um, and he goes and orders some type of burger. I, I imagine a, a Dave's Quarter Pound Single Juicy Burger. Mm. Delicious. Do they still call it that? It used to be a big classic. Now it's a Quarter Pound Single. Juicy. Anyway, um, <laughs> they, um, I know you're a hamburger connoisseur, a chip was, connoisseur and a hamburger chip connoisseur. I just love junk food. Um, they forgot his mustard. Fair enough. Happens. Well, as... COVID-19, there's been mustard shortages. Look, they fuck you at the drive-thru. They always do. Fuck you. They got me the other day. I forget. It was a McDonald's or Wendy's. A McDonald's. Yeah, they, they fucked me at the drive-thru. They forgot something when I was, I was with you at a drive-thru. We were coming oh, here. My McDonald's, Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It might have been through. my mustard. might have been your mustard. Yeah. They Extra fucked me. pickles or whatever. No, I got my pickles. Because um, if I don't get my extra pickles, then I'm, you know, I'm flying into the same violent rage that this man did, where he, like, smashes the drive through window's plexiglass barrier, rips it from the frame all over this, and then throws it underneath a vehicle in the parking lot. So now that vehicle can't leave. That's like some serious raging out. Yeah, you know what? Wrecked a drive-thru. If you were Crown Counsel, would you approve a charge? 
they forgot the mustard. They, they, it's a, it's a victimless crime. That's the point. So how is this guy the ridiculous driver of the week? The, uh, no, it is, it these... is a complete insane overreaction. Insane overreaction, sure, but an apology and pay for the plexiglass, uh, I think would be sufficient. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would be trying to pre-charge divert that one, I think. But... They, they haven't found him. He's on well, the run. He should turn himself in. He should you call know, us up. He should call me. I'm a person who understands the the inherent unfairness and the injustice of being screwed at the drive-through. This may be a rare occasion where we contact the police and uh, and it's not a lawyer told me not to talk to you circumstance. We might provide some statement on a, on an agreement that uh, he's not charged. Yeah. With an apology. If he donates mustard to the food bank. <laughs> Don't laugh about the food bank. Food bank line. Of course, we're in our Richmond office right now. That's where we record Next door this. to the food bank. And we're right next door to the Richmond food bank. And we've had the Richmond food bank basically has overtaken our parking lot. We're no longer meeting clients in the office. So we've allowed the Richmond food bank to overtake our parking lot. It's a bit of an irritant. Um, of course, they've got to stay six feet apart. So they're like, people are standing coiled in the food bank line. I've never seen the food bank line have so many people. But of course, it's really, really long, and so our parking lot has now been given over. And the unfortunate thing, of course, is we've had flower theft, uh, yeah. but we also have people leaving garbage in our flower bed now as a result of the food bank. But I get it. You know, there's a lot of people who are hungry out there right now. But just because you're hungry doesn't mean you have to litter. That's true. And it really upsets me when I see food from the food bank being left for the rabbits out front uh, in our flower bed. So... Um, people leave carrots and corn and and um, and romaine lettuce and such things in our flower bed, thinking that they're doing a favor for the rabbits. The rabbits can't really jump up into the flower bed. There have been some in the past. They have uh, grass. But, yeah, but, you know, that's food that's there for humans, and the rabbits have tons and tons of food here right now. So you don't need to feed the rabbits. So all the food bank listener. No, <laughs> nobody listening <laughs> who's going to the food bank here. But uh, I'm... I'm been asked many times by my staff, should we do something? Should we exert some control over our parking lot again? Should we? Uh, every time I just, you know, what are you going to do? It's the yeah. food bank. And the a the only thing that, that I exert control over is when the lineup is blocking e ingress and egress to the parking lot and I need to park. Well, the upsetting thing is people parking in our spots. Yeah. Um, it's like reserved that, spots. That bothers me because, you know, we pay for those reserved spots. I don't mind people standing. Uh, they'll get out of the way if I have to park there. I uh, had someone refuse to get out of the way for me. Hmm. Just refuse. And I was like, I need to park. And she's like, well, I'm here. Okay. But this is my parking lot. <laughs> and I need to park. I, I know. Well, you, you, I you, pay you, for you this pay parking for lot. pay for this spot. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it's pandemic time. It's pandemic. We'll deal with those things later on. Everybody seems to think that they're going to be forgiven because it's, well, it's a pandemic. A lot of the, I think, speeders and bad drivers think, oh, you know, it's pandemic. Pandemic, pandemic, I need to speed. You will, don't give me a ticket. Okay. It doesn't seem to work. That's our podcast. Really? If, we had another yeah. topic. No. Okay. Sorry, we didn't. I'm sure we had another topic. If you have a driving law related issue. A food bank related issue in Richmond, or if you need to get a hold of us for any reason, give us a call at 604 685 8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And if you're thinking about making a donation to the food bank, I would encourage you to do so. Yes.